Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb. This podcast is designed to equip you to engage American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Today, I talk with author and scholar Dr. Michael W. Austin. Dr. Austin is an American philosopher and professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University. He's also known for his works on moral philosophy and the philosophy of religion. Uh, He has written several books, including Humility and Human Flourishing, God, Guns, and America, and has recently served as the editor of QAnon, Chaos, and the Cross, which explores Christianity and conspiracy theories. In this episode, Dr. Austin will help us understand the nature of conspiracy theories and why so many Christians seem to be buying into them. So without further ado, here is my interview with the venerable Dr. Michael W. Austin. Mike, we've heard a lot about conspiracy theories, fake news, but a lot of it has really reached an inflection point with this phenomenon or this this thing called QAnon. What is QAnon? Yeah, so it's it's harder and harder to define, but really, I think right now, it's just this large group or maybe different communities, kind of loosely affiliated group, tend to be more... Um, politically conservative or, or maybe farther on the right even than conservative depending on on them but it, there's a loosely organized kind of thing and so it started in I'm a philosopher not a historian but I'm going to say 2017 right with kind of a drop on 4chan by a person self identified as Q um, who had says that that they've got some sort of security clearance not the highest but kind of up there somewhere and basically the initial idea is there's just this like cabal. It's always a cabal. I like that word, but um, of Satan worshiping pedophiles, right? So people in the pol- in politics, mainly Democrats or maybe even solely Democrats, of course, um, politicians, journalists, people in entertainment. Um, I think yeah, maybe Tom Hanks, Hillary Clinton, people that have been mentioned, right? That are involved with this kind of stuff. And then it's tied to this idea that, that those people in sort of this, large nefarious group or are tied somehow or are part of the deep state. And so Q drops these things. It used to be first was 4chan, then 8chan, but it's kind of this thing that's exploded. So if you like look at everything it's attributed that you could say this is part of QAnon, ultimately you get things that contradict each other, right? Sometimes it's predictions that don't come true. Sometimes that this will happen and someone else says the opposite, but that's the idea. And then the, the big picture thing is like, there's this battle between good and evil going on and Trump comes in because he's supposed to lead, right? Or is being foretold, I guess is the best way to put it, to be the leader of the side of the good, ultimately going to bring what they call um, great awakening, right? Well, I guess that's first, there's the great, uh, or the storm. I'm getting this confused with something else, sorry. The storm is when there's going to be mass arrests of all these people, um, showing that what Q has been saying is true. And then Trump will lead this thing called the Great Awakening, where we'll all see that Q was right all along and, and usher in some kind of utopia of some sort in the U.S. So that's kind of big picture stuff. And so it's a conspiracy theory because the idea is, or at least it, it believes, you know, can, holds to conspiracy theory. The idea is that there's this group of people working in secret doing really horrible things um, to keep and even gain political and other kinds of power over over our nation. So we've got these large claims about political overthrow, like you said, mass arrests, and it, and there's usually isn't there like dates set or it's going to happen by this time. How do they explain the fact that the thing didn't happen by that date? 
Yeah, that's what's weird to me. It kind of it's almost the similarity in my mind is someone went to high school and college in the eighties when we the first Gulf War. There was just an explosion of end times books. But of course, it's been going on for a long time. Where where some prophet predicts this is the day the world will end, and it doesn't. And then they just come up with a new date later. I mean, it's kind of the same, I think, with QAnon. It gets kind of ignored or maybe reinterpreted, right? Uh, sort of finesse around it. Because there was a thing that all kind of mushes together a few years ago, right? Where I think it, JFK was supposed to like reemerge in Dallas. Of course, it didn't happen. Yeah, and, I remember and we, that. Yeah, we just kind of go on. So, yeah, I think that's it's an interesting parallel, right? You can, things that are publicly verifiably predictions that are false and then there's just sort of a massaging or ignoring or just a oh no here's what's really going to happen right something happens now it's going to be this later date so you've got this correlation between QAnon and like these prophecies of end times and we see in the bible that one of the things that you ought to do to be wise is if a prophet says something's going to happen and then it doesn't happen you just stop trusting that prophet or in some cases, take them out back and stone them to death. Yeah. <laughs> but in this case, it's like, oh, we'll give you a pass or we'll yeah. hit a reset button. Or... So the, the credibility doesn't seem to be impacted by claims that are verifiably false. Yeah. And so that tells you, you know, other things are going on. And of course, you know, I'm a philosophy professor, so I'm more cognitively oriented in many ways. But look, I'm also human. I've got those emotions too. But I think, yeah, I just think the good question is why is that? Why, what we're willing to overlook and reinterpret and what we're willing to say, no, I'm just, that's it for this source of knowledge or this person, right? That's kind of telling about us as people, as groups, those kind of things. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. So many of us have loved ones, uh, friends, coworkers that seem to buy into this stuff, uh, hook, line, and sinker. What's going on that they buy into this? Uh, I mean, I, I can look at some of the same information and think, man, there, there doesn't seem to be any validity to this. Uh, it's, the sources are dubious. There's no footnotes. There's no sources cited. It's all conjecture. And, and yet they're willing to buy into it. What's going on inside of a person that they're willing to, to just give into it and buy, it in, buy into it? Yeah, I think... I mean, I'll speak in particular to people who, you know, are Christians or have a Christian faith that they take fairly seriously, right? They're committed to going to church, being, you know, being a part of a local community, local body of Christ. I think a lot of the language of QAnon, there are a lot, there's a lot of overlap. So these, I mean, think about the similarities, this grand story of good and evil, good's going to be defeated. I mean, evil's going to be defeated, good will win out, and it'll be this utopia. Now, QAnon's in the, you know, it's in this age, but those big themes will resonate with Christians. And he, you know, uses language for QAnon, the, the movement, their language about spiritual warfare and those kind of things. So I think that's part of it. I, and I just think that we, this is more general from what I can gather from people I've listened to and learned from, is that there's this, in times where there's greater uncertainty, greater fear, greater anger, this stuff, some, some reason, given human beings, we kind of glom onto things that give us some kind of an explanation, or a sense of control, maybe. So if... So if I'm kind of freaked out about demographic changes in the U.S., or maybe I'm upset about you know where the where I think the culture is going, or whatever it is, things that a lot of Christians are concerned about, both on the right and the left for different reasons, but QAnon's mainly on the right. Then there's this side. This give this. Well, here's what's really going on. Right? There's this big battle, and and it's going to be okay in, in this world. So I think those are some of the reasons. I think it can give even a. 
I think we're looking, even Christians, maybe we're not looking enough to kind of the overall story of scripture. I mean, story in the sense of like a true story, obviously, but just from of creation, fall, redemption, right? That things are going to are being made new and all is going to be made new. We don't live in that story enough. And so this gives them kind of a, a more concrete, maybe it feels story in the here and now. I'm going to fight for the good of my nation, right? So patriotism comes in, which is a big value for a lot of Christians in America. So I think there's a ton of stuff that relates. Uh, it gives people a sense of, I guess the last one that jumps to mind is, and this is true for all of us, we just kind of like to be in the know, right? So it's kind of, I know what's really going on, right? These people don't know, you know, they're sheep or they're misguided or they're being hoodwinked by the government, the media, politicians, all that stuff. But just like Christians might think, I really know what's going on. There's there's a spiritual reality underneath the, the material reality we see with our eyes. You know, the, I guess the way the, the thought is, something similar here like I, there's this thing really happening that explains all the bad stuff that otherwise i'm not sure what to do with yeah being in the know having the secret knowledge this is yeah. ancient it's an ancient desire uh, you see yeah. it in the bible with some of the the gnostic emphasis in the early church you know the real you know there's a certain elite group of us that have the secret knowledge where they're real insiders yeah in many churches across America, there's the prayer circle or the prayer chain, mm-hmm. and there's usually inevitably someone who delights in having the most recent update about the thing <laughs> you know, on, on the prayer sheet. We're praying for Jane, who's in the hospital, but that date is a week old, and one of the ladies on the prayer chain just says, oh, no, here's the latest update, and there's it's exciting, this part of her being of here's the new knowledge, I've got mm-hmm. it. And I, I delight in sharing that new knowledge with people. Yeah. Well, and I think, I guess I would add one thing. I think it's easy as someone who's more skeptical of all this kind of stuff in general, my, just my initial inclination, um, even though, of course, conspiracies happen, they have happened, um, is, is that it's easy with QAnon, especially, I think a lot of people can say, well, the people that believe that they're just not very intelligent, you know, to put it diplomatically, to put it less so, well, they're stupid. But it's just not true. There's no there's no correlation between like IQ or level of, level of education, right? So it runs the gamut, right? So something there's not it's not just well people aren't really that intelligent or reflective that believe this because there are plenty of people like that that do. So there's something else here. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine a while back, and he was talking to a person from his congregation he'd known for thirty years, and brilliant, brilliant person. Uh, very well read, highly educated, and they intimated that the, I, I think it was like the CIA was poisoning the water to make people's minds more malleable for misinfor- for like some kind of seductive purpose. I don't quite remember what it was. Hmm. And it was embedded in like this larger conversation that was by and large highly intelligent. You know, it, it was, it made a lot of sense. And then there was just this like, portion of the kind of conversation that was way out of left field, at least in the mind of my pastor buddy. Yeah. And you're right. It's not about being stupid or uneducated or not mm-hmm. well read. What is it then? Yeah. Why, why do we believe in these things? Yeah. I mean, I think, I, mean, I think I'd go back to some of the, it gives us an explanation for things. Maybe we just can't explain or struggle to explain gives us a sense of control. But I think too, there's, especially for, I mean, in America, uh, 
in general and evangelicals in particular, maybe not with our own institutions, but with other institutions, a lot of Christians are much more skeptical um, or suspicious, right? And that's not necessarily true historically, but maybe, you know, I would, I mean, you know, I would argue at least like around the time of Clinton and beyond that, you just see, and even in sort of the emergence of the alliance between a lot of Christianity and Republican politics, and I'm not saying that in a negative way, it's just kind of a historical trend and this view of like big governments, bad, small governments. So I don't, I think a lot of these things, there's not like one main thing, but a lot of little threads just sort of run together and create a susceptibility. Uh, people have been skeptical. I mean, there's the science and religion wars that have gone on since Darwin, you know, and in, in the 20th century and still do today in the U.S. So maybe skepticism along those lines of knowledge institutions. Um, skepticism about theologians, about the scholars of the church as well, right? So there's just uh, the good part of America is that sort of, or the, not that it's all good, but some of that sort of democratization of the mind, right? We're independent thinkers, but the bad thing is um, it's really hard to acquire knowledge all by yourself, right? We need each other. So uh, easy to go off the rails. You've mentioned it a couple of times, uh, the eighties, the nineties. Talk a little bit about what sometimes is referred to as the satanic panic. There was this Mm -hmm. maybe 30-ish year period in the late 1900s, especially in American evangelicalism, uh, where there is a lot of conversation around the demonic forces, end times, Satan. Talk about that. What what, what was that for those of us that maybe didn't live through that era? And how do you see that continue today uh, so many years later? Yeah. First, let me just say, when you say the late 1900s, I just, that makes me feel like I'm like I'm my grandma or something, but I'm going to let that go because I'll just call it the <laughs> 70s. Yeah, really kind of late 60s or the mid 90s. So I was in high school and college during some of this. But yeah, there was, uh, there's a chapter in the book about this, actually kind of a, a discussion of this, but there's, you know, there, there was like a panic that there were kind of these Satanists or Satanism was like this prominent force. And so it could be something that we now look back and kind of roll our eyes like the back masking of records like you play records backwards it would say there'd be like satanic content there there are people like mike warnke and others who kind of said later kind of discovered to be frauds but you know we're, i was a satanist and now i'm not and so they would give all the spin these yarns about it that really were not only were they not verifiable there was like people that said no he was never a satanist i was with him during those years and he was just a normal you know normal guy um, but yeah, there was that. There was, I remember actually being a missionary right after college. I was in Budapest, Hungary. And this was when email existed, but it was only like the weird guys that go down the basement of the dorm and do it. Um, so we got, my roommate and I in Hungary, we got a like a Xerox copy of this thing about Procter & Gamble, right? The, that the president of Procter & Gamble is a Satanist. There are all these satanic symbols and all their merchandise. And there are even like quotes from when he was on a, on the Phil Donahue show, which is like, the old version of Oprah or whatever talk shows are cool now. I have no idea. Um, but none of it ever happened, right? It was all false. But I remember at the time thinking, man, this is crazy. And I, I still was skeptical, but it, you know, you just you kind of find yourself, well, could that be right? Um, and so there was this worry, you know, Geraldo Rivera got involved in this stuff as well. And like the cults and Satanism. So all kinds of media and attention and Christians, especially were concerned about it, right? That their children were being taken in by, Satanism and rock music or Procter and Gamble or 
whatever. So yeah, the satanic panic was kind of that idea of just Satanism's everywhere, or at least, you know, behind the scenes and we've got to become aware of it and be wary of it and, and fight against it. How did that intersect with like the left behind series or the movie? I think it was the thief in the night. And then there's also like the red scare, like Gorbachev might be the antichrist or how did that all weave together? Yeah, it was really weird. I remember, Oh man, I think one of the, like how Lindsay, the late great planet earth, I think he was the guy in the late sixties, early seventies when that book came out. So now you get into the like mapping revelation onto current events and like the, I think it was his book that claimed the Apache helicopter, that those were actually the locusts referred to in revelation Gorbachev, like, like the antichrist people would give like, man, it's been so long since I've thought about this stuff, but I, now that we're talking about it, I remember, right? You give some symbolic thing from the book of Revelation and show how that's Moscow or, you know, Gorbachev is the Antichrist or doing the Antichrist bidding or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, the Cold War stuff was in that. And, 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 you know, sort. I mean, it's sort of the atheistic Marxist totalitarian state versus the Christian free democratic state, kind of the two main superpowers not kind of think we were <laughs> and that kind of there's these in- interesting intersections but not like all the end time stuff were necessarily conspiracy theories but they sometimes they would provide some of the i guess fodder for them right there's some global conspiracy so there are worries about the, a glo- what we didn't call it globalism the, the new world order um, or the illuminati then the new world order and that was connected with russia and so when george Bush, was it George Bush the second or the first that talked about the new world order? I think it was the first one. Um, anyway, that got, you know, people freaked out about that too. Kind of the same worries that people have today when they talk about globalism. That's what they talk about then. And worried that there's this conspiracy, right? To somewhere to kind of take away our freedom. Uh, that we're going to cede it to some world government. And it'll be bad for America and, and maybe for the church too. So there's multiple threads that are part of this talk track. There's Satanism or demonic forces at work. You've got like the exorcist movie heightening fury about it. You've got all these uh, evangelical leaders deconstructing heavy metal and rock music. And there's documentaries that have, evangelical leaders going to these heavy metal things and seeing, you know, demonic activity taking place. And I remember uh, the contemporary Christian recording artist, Michael W. Smith being uh, brought to task on one of the cover of his albums, which was being supposedly had secret demonic imagery in the iconography on his album. Uh, So you've got that Satanism, demonic concern mixed with end times, the world is about to end. There's going to be the rapture. It's all going to be horrible mixed with the Illuminati, new world order. The antichrist is becoming manifest in some of these global leaders. Of course, that's woven together with geopolitical realities like globalism and NAFTA and the Eurozone. Uh, And then you throw in some, some good old fashioned anti-Marxist rhetoric and socialism those are all things we're talking about today. How are these things weaving together in the average evangelicals mind? Are, are they separate threads? Is it, is it just how they view the world? Uh, when we're engaging with people, we're sitting across the dinner table from them. How is all this working in their imagination and in their, in their soul? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to because they're they're common threads, and they look. We're, I mean, then we were exposed to them. To, you know, I got a letter in the mail when I was in Hungary, or you know, there might have been a documentary, or I, would, you know, you go see a thief in the night at your, you know, at youth group on Saturday night or whatever it is. But now, of course, with the internet, social media, and all kinds of different forms of media, you can anything is out there, right? And so as we if we get exposed to that stuff. And so I kind of think like when people it's, you know, well, a friend of mine talks about the best way to raise money is to get people angry or fearful about something. And then you can, that, you know, he spent years raising money for political causes and that's what he was told. And I think the same thing's true here. If you can tap into anger or fear, yeah, then, then reason can take a back seat. And the, I think that there must be right some kind of comfort. So I think it's this exposure to it over and over, and in our and some of the stuff because it, I won't say it fits within a Christian worldview. I guess because I, I don't think it's true, but I, it's consistent with it, right? I mean, it, there's no direct contradiction. And like we talked about already, the similarity of language, spiritual battle, good versus evil. And I think the average Christian today is more skeptical of the media, for example. And so Q, that's a big part of Q and on, right? Their media is in on this, probably. Sk- skeptical of the government in in certain ways, right? And I've been giving it too much power. We saw that with a lot of responses to the pandemic and things like that. Um, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for not. And yeah, the, I think it's just, you get these inputs, somebody who maybe you agree with them about A, B, and C, right? Politically or theologically or what with what they say. And then they tell you, you know, E, F, and G, these conspiracy things. And it's, you, they've already got you going down the path sort of of agreement. And it's easier to kind of go along with it because it, it makes sense. It explain, or it's an explanation that you don't have an alternative one for. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, so much of it, social media and internet, and then kind of those word of mouth conversations around the table, like you mentioned Pat, with your pastor friend, right? You just start having this conversation all of a sudden in the middle of it, someone's talking about the CIA poisoning water to make our minds more malleable. <laughs> so it just, yeah. So yeah. In that sense, it, it does seem to be an echo chamber where, I'm kind of, if you just put yourself in the, for those of you that are listening, put yourself in the world of uh, our mission field of American Christian nationalists. They're hearing it from their friends at Sunday school class. They're seeing it on YouTube and the email that their best friend from the bridge group sent them with, you know, some five minute clip uh, that's been curated to create fear and anxiety and outrage. Uh, They're talking about it as they walk their, puppy dog through the neighborhood they're uh, bumping into it and you know maybe their pastor actually says something adjacent that, that reaffirms you know especially we're talking about end times things like that and so it, it's just the water that many people are swimming in uh it's not it's so it's not viewed as an aberration it's not viewed as strange yeah um, that's right and i think you know i've had conversations people at church friends from other stages of you know other parts of my life right where where they people talk about even having a tendency to believe that oh, there's probably something's going on right maybe so they're more friendly just to the possibility of a conspiracy theory um so i think some people actually have that inclination right they just things aren't what they seem right and it might even be you, know, you could use christian beliefs to justify it, right the fallenness of humanity right the desire we have for power pleasure wealth all that stuff and so it makes sense but yeah there is this resistance so i've engaged with some with people and um, so they'll give me some video or something that kind of supports like that the election was stolen or whatever conspiracy is. And then I'll do a little research, give a counter argument. And then 
it's kind of like political discussions rather than responding to the objection or the counter argument you just start talking about something else right but we weren't finished by talking you know so i think that's to me that's a red flag whether someone's doing it as i have a discussion or i'm doing it in my own life right over thing just because i'm uncomfortable or i don't want to talk about it or maybe i'm afraid to admit oh that could be a problem with what i believe right it's easier just to go on and well, what about that kind of what about ism of a certain kind? So I think a lot of that stuff goes on in these discussions. But I think a lot of people just maybe like, you know, if that person next in the pew next to you says something, we just dismiss them. And so that's what, you know, if you're thinking about being a missionary to these people, or if it's a, someone who is a brother or sister in Christ, right? We want in the book, our, our heart behind the book is the, to help relationships flourish, right? Because these things really are dividing people in churches and families, friendships, and what, what does it mean to, when we have disagreements about this kind of thing with somebody, how can we love that person? Um, that's what we want to do and try to give some tools for that. So I think, you know, just as believers in Christ, we want to do that with, with those people. In our, you know, I'm not really concerned about a discussion with some random guy on the Internet who goes to church, you know, in upstate New York. But if the guy around the corner from me that goes to church with, I'd, much, I'd engage him more in depth about this if he has some conspiracy beliefs. You know, maybe ask him, have conversations about it and try to humble myself, be open, ask him questions, really get him to explain what he thinks and why, and then try to do the same and have a, a long view of a dialogue going on. Because, look, as a philosophy professor, even though I'm not this way all the time or as much as I'd want to be, someone gives you an argument, well, here's the counter argument. So now you you agree with me, right? Well, no, you know, and maybe that person will. Hopefully, if I'm right, they will over time. But it's just not that simple. So there's a patience, a forbearing uh, that must go on. So how would you coach us? Hmm. In we're, we're sitting at the dinner table, and we hear something that we think is probably like from QAnon or some dubious source and our spidey senses up it doesn't quite sound right it sounds outrageous or anxious or fear-mongering what are how would you coach us and how to respond how could we respond to that in such a way that would lead to uh, perhaps reconciliation or healing mm-hmm. or at least moving the conversation in a healthy direction yeah i think number one is maybe you should say something then maybe not uh, maybe you should wait because i you know there's something um one of the communications professors that works, worked on the book talks about emotional contagion. So it's easy to think, I think this, like we want tend to believe, well, I think that person's just, you know, they're off their rocker. They don't, you know, they've like bought into this stuff that's just fanciful. There's no evidence for it. And we think that those, you know, they're just stupid or they don't know what's going on. And we think that that doesn't, we think we can like wall that off and just treat them well. Right. We can still love them, but it looks like it bleeds through. Um, if, if that's our true attitude towards somebody, it's going to bleed through in some in one way or the other. So I would say the first thing is just attend to what's going on inside of you, right? If I'm having those feelings, maybe it maybe it's not the best time to even, you know, just to have a conversation about it. I might, and if they want to, I say, well, I'm gonna, let me think about them more, and we can talk more later, right? Get get yourself in a situation where you can, where that sort of those emotional issues aren't as present, at least where you decide I'm going to go in and try to love this person, be humble. So you've got to have an openness, right? So then I would go back to them and say, you know, when you talk, when you mentioned whatever that, you know, whatever part, like the entertainment industry has, you know, they're, or the Hillary, what's the thing that they're, the blood thing they're drinking that people, the more recent one, a Denacrone or I don't know, some drinking, don't in, yeah, drinking infant's blood. Like, where did you hear that? I might start with that. 
Um, why do you what like why do you think that's actually happening? I'm interested to know what sort of evidence you have, and not in an accusatory way, but you've got to you want to be genuine, like really asking, like some curiosity, compassionate curiosity, engage in a conversation. You know, some of those bases of communication. So what I heard you, you know, I heard you say is this and kind of restate it to them um, and maybe affirm whatever common ground there is. And there may be no common ground about the actual substance of what they're saying. But look, like, for example, so let's not even talk about the pandemic. Just talk about vaccines in general. So let's say you have a conversation with somebody that, that's, that's an anti-vaxxer, you know, before even COVID happened. And they really don't want you to get the flu vaccine or have your kids get the, you know, whatever, MMR. It's been a while. My kids are all old now. But, and so you think, well, no, I think vaccine, you know, you think it's good just for sake of argument. Well, what you can do, yeah, you might have no agreement about the fact of the matter, but you can say, well, look, I, can, I appreciate that you act like if I was in your shoes, I would do what you would. I'd be really, if I'm really think this is dangerous, I'd want to tell people I care about and love. So you can affirm the motives behind that are good. And, and often they are, it's not like people are just, you know, I mean, I, I think even with those others, even with the QAnon stuff, I think not always, but often the motives are good. People, of course we don't want, if any of this was true, it'd be horrible. Right. But, and so we would want to fight against it. So I think that's good. But I think what you want then is to make, make the relationship prior the, the fundamental good and even tell the person, right? My co-editor, Greg Bach, talks about this, like with people he's interacted with, is just to say to that person, if, you know, family member or friend, like, I don't we probably disagree on some stuff here, but I just want you to know from the outset, I love you and I don't want this to come between us. I just want us to try to learn from each other, interact. And, and if it means at the end, we just agree to disagree, that's okay. Um, but I would... As, as you kind of spirit-led wisdom guides, I want to I want to press back. So you might tell the person, well, let me pr- push back on this one point that, that I've got some questions about or maybe uh, something I've heard and see what you think about it and then give them a counter-argument. Or, you know, maybe they give you something to read and then you find a good thing for them to read. And so if there's that mutuality going on, that's what you want, right? And, but the hard part is, you know, which seems even more difficult in our society these days is there's a disagreement. I've got to like be humble enough to really read and consider that person's stuff in the same way I want them to read and consider my stuff, right? If we're talking about one of these issues, um, some way of loving your neighbors yourself, right? By respecting, yeah, and you can disagree hundred percent with every word, but at least you've come at it and tried to understand it. And even praying, God, if any of this is true, help me to see that. And if not, help me to see why not. And um, I think those are some things, right? Just kind of basis of communication, but I think from a, a, a humble and loving posture. And when we start out that way, it can set the tone. And then when things start to get heated, just be wise enough and kind of forward and say, hey, I feel like we're kind of getting, things are getting a little like amped up, right? I can tell you're kind of getting animated. I'm getting animated. Maybe we should just, you know, take a break and talk about it more another time after we sort of had chance to process and calm down. So just making that relationship, the number one thing is always the most important. Yeah. And one, one of the best ways to get out of a heated conversation is just to say something like you've said a lot that I just haven't really thought through deeply. Can we wait a week to continue? Yeah, that's good. And so It's not your fault that I'm concluding this, I'm studying down this meeting. Mm. It's, it's a, my fault, right? Like, and that's yeah. one thing too. Galatians six, one and two says that if anyone's caught up in a transgression, we want to restore them gently, watch out for our own hearts. And this is how we bear one another's burdens. 
And so when I'm in those conversations, I'm bearing the burden of their crazy, like the crazy things that they're saying or the hateful things that they're saying. And that, that causes me to feel feelings. And sometimes if they're my family, I feel family shame and resentment. And that's a me problem. That's not a yeah. them problem. And so for those listening, I would just invite you to anytime you enter into a conversation, like Mike said, be wise enough to know when it's time to put the brakes on that particular track of the conversation, because if the conversation kills the relationship, uh, we failed. And so if the, if the relationship just in that moment, if it's under so much stress or weight from outrage, anxiety, right, whatever the thing may be, put it on pause, pick it up again next week, play the long game. Uh, changes of heart and mind rarely happen in one conversation. And they never yeah. happen in hostile environments. Yeah. And I think that's something over the years, gosh, more on social media, because I've always been tend to be more this way in person, but then transferring it over in person as well as this in like a sort of a, I guess, a rhetorical nonviolence, so to speak, right? So where I'm just the way I interact, the words I say, they can be forceful, but they're not harmful or attacking. And I think you're exactly right. We have to just it's not saying, well, look, you're getting all worked up. Let's talk later when you've calmed down. You don't want to do that. That's not going to get you anywhere. And yeah, being honest, I'm getting worked up. And look, I've, that's something I've learned over the years for me, not so much in class with my students, but in other settings is that if somebody says something I just think is wildly irrational and clearly false, there's a part of like, I get worked up about that. Kind of like when I encounter a, a serious form of or injustice, I just get, and there's nothing that that's good to a degree. But I need to, but maybe that doesn't, that means I might need to wait before I say anything um, or just take a breath and say something, you know, try, and without just being aware of your internal temperature, I guess, is really important. Um, and if you can't engage someone in that kind of humble love, then, then yeah, what you said is exactly what you need to do and own it for yourself. Don't blame them. That's good. Rhetorical nonviolence. That's right. Yeah. That's so good. So. I love that. So just kind of the opposite of every single political discussion on Twitter, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's a helpful guide. Yeah. So tell us real quick about the book and then where we can find you and your work. Yeah. So the book's QAnon, Chaos on the Cross, Christian Conspiracy Theories. Initially, a friend of mine uh, had a publisher approach him about just doing a, like writing a book about it. And I said, yeah, I'll talk to him. And then I, I looked at the issue and I'm just like, I don't know enough to write a whole book about this, right? I, I've got some stuff I think that can be helpful. But anyway, so Greg Bach, professor at University of Texas at Tyler, he's used conspiracy theories to teach critical thinking uh, for years in his class and, and really familiar with this stuff. So we put it together and we thought, what we want is a resource for people. So this isn't, the book's not meant to be something you give to your brother who's way into QAnon, right? That's not the point. I mean, maybe down the line, but it's actually more, for you or a pastor or somebody who's like, how do I approach people, you know, kind of like we've already talked about who are neck deep in this stuff. What, what do I do? How can I engage them? Gives you some facts, what the history of it, what's going on. We talk about different virtues, things in the Bible, um, theology, philosophy, information, science, communication, professors, pastors, all kinds of people. So the idea, I think, is to be a resource to help us engage and love our neighbor in this context. Um, what, how come I love my neighbor who's just way into this, whether they're a believer or not? That's the idea. 
Uh, and yeah, we're really happy with how it came out. We didn't we didn't really direct the contributors to do topics so much. We gave you know some we asked them to you know their area of expertise, and others we just said, hey, do you want to write something for this? And as we kind of worked and communicated, um, we're happy with what we got. So anyway, yeah, that's the idea. It should be a, it's a way to a resource to help people. And you don't have to read through it in order. You don't have to read all of it, right? Just pick some of the, you know, there are 24 chapters. So I would start with the stuff that seems most interesting or most relevant to what you're going through at the moment with people. Uh, yeah, for my own work, I'm, I have a website at michaelwaustin.com um, with this and some of the other stuff I do. I'm on Twitter at michaelwaustin, at least for the time being. So get in touch those ways for her, uh, the quickest ways, I would say. But yeah, this is a bigger part of, I think, maybe just a one little bit about why we did this apart from the immediate issues that are posed for me, it's a larger concern about like our character right, as followers of Jesus, both individually and corporately about contributing to the common good politically and socially and otherwise, right. Regardless of where we fall in the political spectrum and that, yeah, that look, we, I want the church's witness. And of course we all want this. We want it to be credible. And so I think our concern with the prevalence of some of this stuff is that that, that friend of yours who seemed your pastor's friend, actually, that's a great example. Someone who's intelligent, all this stuff. And then they say something like that about the CIA, which I don't think there's any publicly available evidence for. But let's say he's talking to his next door neighbor about Christ and they're having a conversation and then he slips that in. Well, that undermines his credibility. Not that we have to be perfect, but, you know, these, this, it can do damage both in the church and as the church tries to um, bring the kingdom of, of God to bear on on the world and through evangelism and discipleship and social, you know, service. So anyway, that, that's the stuff that I think the heart behind the book. It's not it's meant to be an attack. Um, and I don't even agree with everything in every chapter, right? That's the, you get 24 different people to write stuff. You're not going to agree with it all. But, but I think it can all be thought provoking and helpful for people who really want to dig in a little bit from a Christian perspective. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. I really appreciate it and love the work that you do. And to our listeners, I want to highly recommend uh, picking up the book wherever books are sold, QAnon, Chaos, and The Cross. Until next time, see you guys later.